This is FinTech Flight Deck. Here, we say we focus on FinTechs, but mostly we focus on money and how it moves. I'm your tech-savvy host, Jay Brown. Let's get at it. I'm not alone here in the studio, but I'm with Josh, Josh Chapman. Nice to see you. Good to be with you. Thanks, Jay. Super excited to be here. Yeah, man. Josh, you're our chief financial officer. Congratulations on coming on to the team. Thank you. Yeah, just uh, made it official last week or two weeks ago, so um, it's been an awesome reception. A lot of great feedback from folks, and I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, man. Definitely excited to have you in general. Josh, where are you from? Originally, uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey, just outside New York. I was born in Elizabeth and lived there about 15 years and then lived in Virginia for a good amount of time before I ended up out here. That is a long ways. I just came from Philly myself about two years ago. Born and raised here in Chicago, but definitely love the East Coast. A lot of sports drama happening out that way, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sports drama right now. I happen to be a huge New York Jets fan, so we're having a lot of fun after winning on Sunday. Quite an upset, but yeah, there's always drama in New York sports. You you get used to it if you're a big New York fan, and I am, so... I enjoy it, man. I, I, I'm team Zach Wilson. Not many people on that team, but I say let him play. Let's go for it. Well, he's been playing better the last couple of weeks, so as long as he's playing better, I'm happy. Happy to have him there. Yeah, man. I also hear you're a really big girl dad. Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm a big girl dad. Three girls, uh, 16, 13, and 11, and they definitely uh, take up all my free time. That's awesome, man. Give me the tiniest secret about being the best girl dad. Wow, that's tough. I don't know that I would say I'm the best girl dad. I think the biggest thing for me, like the question you get a lot is like, oh, did you really want to have a boy or were you did you keep trying to have a boy? And we didn't. Um, but what I would say is like, don't underestimate as a dad. You can do everything with a daughter that you can do with a son. And to me, that's like the biggest advice and the biggest secret. Like you don't have to change the things you do, the activities. My daughters are into so many different activities that I also enjoy. So that would be my one tip is don't don't handicap yourself or think that there's only certain things you can do because you have a boy or a girl. You can do anything with anybody. I love that. That's awesome. Great message. Now getting into a few of the training topics, I did I did pull a couple of headlines and I'm interested to see what you think about it. Interesting enough, when I pulled these headlines, I also found that you have mentioned some of these as well. And I thought that was awesome because, you know, we're right on topic and I think that there's going to be perfect overlap. So the first one comes from Yahoo Finance and it's Aeropay and Ubank join forces to revolutionize gaming payments. Now, this is huge. Talk about strategic collaboration like Aeropay, Ubank. I mean, what do you think is the biggest part of this collaboration going on right now? Yeah, you know, that was a super exciting announcement that we made with Ubank, supporting PrizePix, who's uh, one of our online gaming clients. I think what makes it special, right, is is it's a partnership. A lot of times when you get into these sorts of arrangements, you might feel like the other party is a vendor, not not really a true partnership. Yeah. Uh, what we have here with Ubank is we really came together to come up with the right solution for PrizePix and, and for their customers. And when you do that and you find that solution that works for everyone, it's really special. And that's why we wanted to put out an announcement about it. Um, You know, we're moving money. And on the surface, people look at that and they don't think that's too unique or too exciting. But the way we're doing it and some of the new and innovative things that we've put in place with Ubank uh, is why the partnership is so special. And like like I said, it it boils down to having the right people uh, on both sides of the relationship to make it really work and make it special. And what are some of those payment challenges that you think you guys are addressing over there? Well, I think we're making it a lot easier for uh, customers to be able to get their funds and get them very quickly. 
And we're doing it in a way that we're, we're always super focused on compliance and making sure that we're being careful in how we're moving that money. And, and we're doing some things. We're leveraging um, AI and machine learning in a way that a lot of folk, other folks aren't. So that's what I would say is probably most special about the relationship. Excellent. You mentioned AI. The CEO, Dan Muller, mentioned uh, sophisticated payment solutions that will redefine the landscape when talking about the partnership between AeroPay and UBank. Can you go into maybe a little bit more of that or what you believe that means to you? Again, sophisticated payment solutions that were redefined the landscape. Sure. Well, you know, if you think about it, you know, bank-to-bank payments and, and moving money between banks is not, nothing new. It's been around for hundreds of years. So what we've done is we've taken a process that probably was a little outdated and a lot of folks overlooked and didn't think about how they can make it better or different in this day and age. Yeah. Uh, and AI is one of those tools that really gives you a unique perspective because for a long time, as folks were moving money bank to bank, and it's been online now for you know 25 years, we've been able to do that. It hasn't been something where a lot of machine learning was employed, partially because we hadn't developed the right technology yet. But if you think about it, as you're you know being safe and taking care of folks' money, something that's man-made versus something that a machine is helping you learn and get better with every day is just going to make the process better and more secure. And that's really what it boils down to. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned different perspectives. I have to say, looking at your experience, it's plain to see that you've had an illustrious career. What has been your secret in staying relevant and consistently reinventing yourself? How do you keep those perspectives? I think, I think the most important thing is that you have to be curious. You have to always want to learn about the trends, what's coming, what's different. Uh, it's very easy to get into an industry or a specific role and then focus on that and become a real expert there. But if you're not also watching the trends and see what's changing, you can get stuck in that role. So for me, if I look back at my career and I've worked in different industries, different roles, the most important thing for me is remaining curious and and watching what's happening, watching the trends, seeing how things are evolving. I, I can go back so far as to say... When I worked in, in travel insurance, which I'm going back now over 25 years, you know, that was before the internet. Like the only thing that was being transacted online was people were buying books on Amazon in 1998 when I started there. So if you look at like that transformation and, and as we took something like travel insurance that was not very exciting, not very sexy, and we started selling it online and integrating it with key partners like the airlines, that completely changed the industry. So staying up with trends and watching what's happening is how you stay relevant. And I think that's true for individuals, but also for companies. That's great. I have to say, you actually bring a lot of experience into that, being able to look at the companies and find what it is that really makes them tick and what it is to kind of harp on. And I I see that because you've been a fractional C-level executive. Now, you've said that you believe fractional C-level executives are the future of early stage in mid-market companies. My question to you is, how does a fractional C-level executive help take early stage in mid-market companies to the next level? And what innovations can be made in the business relationship? Gotcha. So yeah, so I'm a big believer in fractional C-level executives for early and mid-stage companies in particular. Mm -hmm. 
Because when you have a new startup and a new idea, there's a lot of energy that comes with it. And it's usually the best ideas and innovations come from people who aren't currently in the industry or earlier on in their career to spot these opportunities. But once you start building a business, you want to be able to leverage some experience of folks who've been there and done that and have seen what happens. Now, you don't want to go too far in either direction, right? You don't want to have a team of executives that have no experience amongst them. Um, but you also don't want a team that's all, you know, people have been doing it for 40 years and are going to want to do it the way it's always been done. And I think that's where the fractional C-level executive can really balance things out. Because for an earlier stage company, they might not have the financial resources to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for someone who's been in an industry 20 or 30 years. But by using the fractional approach, you can still get their experience, but you're paying less because they're only working with you maybe like one day a week or two days a week. So that's why I think it makes so much sense. And I think that a lot of what's changed in the workplace, especially post-COVID, um, is why it's becoming so attractive. And I've met so many, so many great startups, you know, as a mentor, different organizations I've been a part of where the founders have a great idea, but they just are, they're struggling to getting things going. And they want to bring in that seasoned person as a, a CMO or a CFO or a COO, but they can't afford it. So they really, it, it slows them down in terms of the growth. That's why I think fractional makes so much sense. And I think going forward. And I hear this not only from founders who worked with Fractional, but when I talk to investors who invest in a lot of startups, they see the value in it as well. So I, that's why I really believe it's the future. And I think that as people get more comfortable with it as an approach, you're going to see a lot more creative solutions in place around Fractional work. I think you're right about that. I think it's definitely becoming a trend. I think that a lot of other companies will definitely be smart to pick it up. I mean, when you're talking about those early stages, they're so critical, right? So that kind of brings me to the next headline. Your CFO, a fraction of the time, New York Times. We talked about the CEO being maybe your CEO for a day and then kind of like this area that's pseudo in, pseudo out. I, I guess who's this arrangement better for? Do you think it's better for the CEO, the fractional C level? Or do you think it's better for the company? So I think if it's done correctly, it's better for both parties, to be to be honest with you. And, well, and I, I let me take that back for a second. I think you have to have the right person who's the fractional C-level. Let me say that for a moment because I certainly met a lot of folks who provide fractional work who are extremely talented and are qualified to call themselves a C-level executive. Sure. And then I found a lot of people who are advertising themselves as a C-level fractional executive and yet like they maybe, you know, have five or six years experience have never sat in the seat. So I think the first thing I would say is it's got to be the right person. If it's the right person, I think the relationship benefits both parties because for the early stage startup, they're getting all that experience at a fraction of the cost. And then for the executive, it gives you a lot of, of flexibility. Um, you know, you have your own business. I was running my own business. I had as many as five clients at one time and I loved it. Wow. It was a, a different type of freedom than I've ever had before because I'd never worked for myself up until this point. So I think it benefits both sides if it's done correctly. But the one thing I would say is, you know, it has to be the right person. And, and like I said, I've met plenty of great, talented people who do it. So if I was giving advice to a founder, that's what you need to find. Make sure they're really vetted and that they, they have the qualifications to really call themselves a C-level executive. I agree. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned that you were going between five different businesses because my question is, is time an issue between them? Yeah, you have to be really disciplined in terms of your time management, and you have to be able to carve out and say, I'm going to spend this much time here, this much time here. But 
you know, when you're working with startups, you know, like when I was working with Aeropay, I had an arrangement with the company in terms of how much time I spent. But if Dan needed to text me or call me because something came up, he knew he could and I was going to be there and be responsive. So yes, you have to manage your time well, but you do have to be flexible because that's how you differentiate yourself. I mean, it's true for any business, right? But in, in that case, I would say once I got up to like four and five clients, time management was key, keeping track of all the, those deliverables that, that I had. Here, here to that. Time management is key in all things, yeah. especially if you have three kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, week, weekends are an adventure. I will tell you that. Uh, three kids and five businesses. My goodness. So, what are the problem-solving benefits? Would you say between that relationship? I think you know what the problem that it really solves is is bringing that right level of experience to to the startup that is just getting going, and normally they would have to try and tap into a mentor or an investor to help them navigate you know complex challenges. And the truth is, when you're trying to do that, you know those mentors and investors want to spend time with you, but they can't allocate as much time with it. So that fractional executive is going to give you that time and the experience that comes with it. So to me, that's the biggest problem that you're solving is that you're, you're bringing in decades of experience through one person who might only spend like one day a week with you or a couple hours a month. But in that time, if, if you know what it is you want to focus on as the founder, you're going to be able to cover a lot of ground. And I think that's really the problem it solves is, is taking a lot of experience and making it accessible to folks who might not normally have the financial resources to tap into it. Yeah, it's kind of like tapping into just a well of knowledge. You know, like there, there's so many people out there who have done this before and having being at the early stages, being able to tap on somebody who's been there and done that, I could absolutely see how that could be a huge advantage. Yeah, and, and I, you know, it's probably personally for me relevant to a stop in my career where I was the CEO of Give Forward. Right. Give Forward was the first personal crowdfunding website in the United States. We launched wow. a few months after Kickstarter we before any of the others came along and if you think about it a fractional executive in many way is it's like crowdfunding right except sure. you're spreading yourself out over a couple of businesses so you can help more people the same way crowdfunding was you know bring a lot of people together or help someone in need so um i think that's probably why it resonates with me is that you're reaching more people and helping more people by by taking that approach now thinking about what you said about making sure that you have the right person I know that years ago, you mentored a founder who used a specific term. And so my question to you is, what does avoid the charlatans mean to you? Yeah, so so John, the name of the founder, I won't say the company, just out of respect for him. But John was a co-founder of a company that I was mentoring for a while. And it was one of the first times I met him. We were, it was a kind of a social gathering to kick off. They were a, a part of an accelerator program. Okay. And we were talking about this, but we were talking about how when startups start to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. When they're showing signs, they're gaining traction. You have a lot of people come out who want to suddenly help you. And, and I experienced this when I was the CEO of Give Forward, which was the context for this conversation. Sure. And suddenly all these people are emailing you and, oh, I'd love to take you to lunch. I'd love to talk to you. And they all come in wanting to help. And what you realize and what John was referencing about avoiding the charlatans is a lot of those people who come out of the woodworks wanting to help you really are just trying to see what, how they can benefit themselves. How can I get some equity in your company? How can I make some money off of you? How can mm. I, I really enjoy the success you're having without bringing a lot of value to you? So Aeropay has a strong history of successfully managing risk. What do you believe draws Aeropay to embrace risk and how does your team effectively handle it? 
Well, I think for Aeropay, we view risk as being a really important part of our offering. And that if you look at the last 30 years, especially with some of the advancements in, in fintech, the companies that have learned to manage high risk and do it really well end up become the future leaders of fintech. Um, a lot of the other big companies that came out 15 years ago started in high risk. So we're really approaching it the same way where we think um, being able to manage risk is the most important part of our offering to our clients. So it'll always be a major focus for us. And we think long term, it'll lead to m- many bigger opportunities. And then looking ahead, what role do you see Aeropay playing in the evolving financial ecosystem? And how do you envision it shaping the future of money movement? Well, I think if you look specifically in the United States, we've kind of skipped over ACH payments as being a popular way for people to pay for goods. If you look in other countries, other parts of the world... Um, They don't use credit cards nearly as much as we do in the U.S., frankly. So, yeah, I think Aeropay is uniquely positioned to help folks use ACH bank-to-bank payments for regular transactions because it's a lot cheaper, especially for the merchants who are continually feeling more pressure on their bottom line because of what they have to pay to process money. So I think Aeropay can really help level the playing field, especially for those small and mid-sized merchants, even very big companies, right? You think about some of the largest companies in the world that are not leveraging ACH as much as they could, they're probably losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year that they're paying out in fees that they wouldn't have to if they would be creative and use ACH. I think Aeropay can help them do that in a way that is just as fast uh, and as convenient as some of the other payment methods while saving themselves a lot of money. Hey, man, and what company doesn't want to save money, (laughs) right? Right. right? It's crazy to think about uh, MasterCard and Visa as being these credit card giants and then having... The system, as you point out, as like in Europe, they've been using ACH forever. It seems like we're kind of catching up in that way. But when you look at the numbers, the underlying numbers, you actually start to wonder about that. And it's maybe it's just like this thing that MasterCard and Visa have us under a certain kind of spell where we feel that ACH isn't plausible option. But truly, it is. And it's the proof is in the pudding. It's in the numbers. And I, I kind of want to get to that with these activities that I prepared for you. So these are activities based off of two headlines that I've pulled. And they're very simple. The first one comes from Pew Research Center. What I would like you to do is to guess the percentage of Americans using cash in a typical week. Now, the purchases include things like groceries, gas, services, or meals. We're looking at a four-year difference, so from 2018 to 2022. So again, 2018, guess the percentage of Americans using cash in a typical week. So from almost all purchases, some purchases, none purchases for cash. In 2018, how do you think that ratio broke down? I would think it would be some. It would be in the middle, kind of middle tier middle. at this point. That's what I would, I would have guessed if you'd asked me for a number like 50 to 60% using cash on a weekly basis. Okay. So 50 to 60% using cash on some basis, and then how many are not using cash at all? Oh, not using cash at all. In 2018? In 2018, I think it's a small number. I think it's 5 to 10%. Okay. In 2018. Okay. So if you're giving us 60% in the middle... Five to 10, not at all. That means that almost all purchases got to be in the 30 range. So now let's jump forward four years. 2022, last year, same question. We've gone through the pandemic. Fintechs like Aeropay have showed up. Almost all purchases are cash. What's that percentage? It's, oh, we always said 30%, oh so now it's... 
Oh, gosh. I would say it's not even 5%. Not even 5%. So you're flipping... That are, you're saying that that the people make all their purchases using cash. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's like 5% or less. So you're flipping... Basically, you're flipping the years then. And four years span, you're saying that it's gone from non to all 5%. So, all right. I'm going to break it down. In 2018, 18% of all purchases were made with cash. So you missed that by 10%. 52%, you're right on the money there, were some purchases, and 30% were none. In 2022, the almost all purchases goes down from that oh. 18% yep. to 14 Yep. Higher than the five, you said. And then the 44% in the middle. And then now we're at 41% of not at all for no cash yeah. used. But we'll move on to this next one. For this next activity, I would like you to put six non-cash payment trends in order by the amount that you think they've moved. So six non-cash payment trends. So we have checks, credit cards, debit cards, prepaid debit cards, and then we have ACH debit and ACH credit. If you were to put those in order by the amount of money that is moved using that payment method, which one would you put at number one? For the most money that's being moved? Yeah, for non-cash payment. For non-cash payment. I would say credit card. Credit card. Number one in the U.S. Number two? Um, probably debit card. Not prepaid, but regular debit card. Okay. Yep. And then three? Then I would say probably ACH. Um, credit or debit? Debit. Debit. Yep. And then prepaid debit, then ACH credit. So you're putting ACH credit at the bottom. No, bottom. at fifth. And yep. then checks. Checks last. Checks yep. last. That's crazy because checks used to be right. everything. Yeah. All right. So you're off a little bit. Number one is ACH credit transfers for most money moved. Now imagine. Oh, because it's, vo- it's volume money, not right. number of transactions. That right. makes sense. So this is consumers, businesses, governments. Yep. And that's because of direct deposit, yep. right? So all of that goes into our pockets, whether we're getting that from our businesses or yep. the government is sending us money, right? So the number one was ACH credit transfer. Believe it or not, it was $60 trillion was the number. ACH debit transfer was second at 30 That makes sense, yeah. Checks, still in there, $25 trillion at third. Fourth was credit cards at $5 trillion. I think America's learning a thing or two from the 90s. <laughs> debit card, $4 trillion. And then finally, prepaid debit cards, $1 trillion. That, the check number is the one that blows me away. Is it? Because like, I might write one personal check every six months for something very random. But everything else I do, online bill pay, I use a credit card or a debit card. Like, I mean, writing checks is so rare for me. Sure. I can't imagine it's still $25 trillion in one year. That's insane. I know. I agree. But, I, you know, times have changed. But I think in such a way, some people still are holding on to that check. Maybe there's like a comfort or a security kind of feeling in there. But we've got to get them off of that. Yeah. Got to bring them into 2023. Josh, I, I got to ask you, does Aaron Rodgers come back? This year? Yeah. I mean, he's definitely coming back. I think, I mean, I saw him walking on the sideline Sunday having a catch, so I was shocked. I mean, when I when I think about an Achilles injury, I think of people like Kobe Bryant took over a year to come back. I, I find it hard to believe somebody could come back in the same year from that injury, but I'd love to see it. It'd be an amazing story. So, yeah, we'll see, but I'd be shocked. Josh, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. You can come by anytime you like. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it.
Thank you for tuning in to Fintech Flight Deck, and a huge thanks to our home sponsor, Aeropay. I've been your Fintech Savvy host, Jay Brown, signing off. Until next time.